Welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, May 20th, 2021. This week's Parsha is the Parsha of Nusso. What a wonderful pleasure to be together with you tonight. It is a thrill for me to be able to study together with you tonight, and I appreciate that you've joined us, and I look forward to what we're going to do tonight. I want to start with an insight to this week's Parsha that is kind of based on Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And it deals with a passage within our Parsha this week, the Parsha of Nusso, that discusses the laws of a Nazir. A Nazir is a person who takes upon themselves special rules of holiness and abstinence. A Nazir takes a pledge not to drink any wine or alcohol, not to cut their hair, not to come into contact with a dead body, like by attending a funeral, for example. Normally, if a Nazir undertakes this project, the normal amount of time is 30 days. It could be longer, it could be shorter. There are exceptions. The most famous exception is Shimshon, Samson, who was a Nazir from the moment of his birth, actually literally before his birth, his entire life. And that is the subject of the Haftorah of this Shabbos because it relates to this subject of a person who was a Nazir, although in a unique category. But that's the idea. What the Torah does not tell us is two questions. Number one, why would a person do this? What is the impetus to become a Nazir with all that it entails? And number two, is this a good thing or is it not a good thing? And on this second question, the Torah itself seems to go in both directions. On the one hand, the Torah says, Kol yemei nizro kadosh hu all of the days that this person is a Nazir, he is holy to God. It seems to be saying that it's a positive thing. But on the other hand, just a few verses later, the Torah says, when a person finishes this period of being a Nazir, they're required to offer a carbon, a sacrifice. The, the con we're talking about while during the time that the base of Midrash is standing, they're required to bring a sacrifice and included in the offering is a carbon chattis, which is a sin offering, which implies that somehow this person did a sin, did an Avera. This dispute between whether a Nazir is a good thing to do or whether it's not such a good thing, but it's just permitted. This is an ongoing dispute. We find this dispute in the time of the Mishnah. We find this dispute at the time of the Talmud. We find the dispute among commentators in medieval times. It is an unresolved dispute that goes on throughout history. And it is a substantive dispute. It's about the subject of asceticism, about living a life of self-denial. Is that a positive thing or is it not such a positive thing? Now, the truth is almost every religion 
has in some way this phenomenon of people who, in pursuit of spiritual purity, will withdraw from the world, withdraw from legitimate pleasures and temptations, and they may live in caves, they may go on retreats. It is possible that the Qumran sect, who are known to us through the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's possible that they may have been one such movement of ascetics, that's one theory among scholars. And in the Middle Ages, there were Jews who adopted different types of self-denial, a group that is referred to as the Hasidim of Ashkenaz. So I want to be very, very clear about something. We're all familiar with the term Hasid and Hasidim. That is a modern movement from the late 1700s, early 1800s. I'm not referring to that at all. This has no connection to that. The word Hasid simply means a pious person. The, t the term has been used since the time of the Talmud, but Hasidei Ashkenaz, the pious ones of Ashkenaz, were a group of Jews in the Middle Ages who adopted all kinds of self-denial and in the same time period, there were Jews in Islamic lands that also had similar practices of self-denial. And it could be that those trends are related to what was going on in other religions. In the period of the Crusades, there were groups of Christians who would take upon themselves practices of self-mortification and self-denial. In Islam, there was the movement of Sufism, which was a mystical movement also connected to self-denial and asceticism. So it could be that part of the apprehension against the concept of a Nazir is because there may be a connotation it is somehow borrowing or connecting to certain non-Jewish religious trends within society. And the other approach, that is, if you take the side that being a Nazir is not a, pi a positive thing, something that a person at the end has to atone for, it would be that Judaism strongly believes that God is to be found in the midst of the physical world and that our job is not to escape the physical world, especially once God himself said about the physical world that he created in the book of Beratius at the beginning of Genesis. He kept saying, Kitov, it's good and it's exceedingly good. So we don't believe in renouncing the pleasures of this world, but we believe in sanctifying them, in uplifting them. In any event, it's a, it's a dispute, it's a debate, it's gone on for centuries, and it will continue to go on. What is extremely puzzling, though, is the position of the Rambam, Maimonides. Because the Rambam, in the same work, 
Mishnah Torah, his main work of Jewish law, in two different places quotes two different opinions. In one place, he provides the negative opinion. A person may say that I will completely separate myself from the normal paths of the world and I'll go to the other extreme. As a result, he does not eat meat or drink wine or, referring to a man, take a wife or live in a decent house or wear decent clothing. This too is bad, Rambam says, and it is forbidden to choose this way. Clearly, he's against being a Nazar. But just if a number of pages later, in the same work, in the laws of Nazir, the Rambam writes, whoever vows to God to become a Nazir by way of holiness does well and is praiseworthy. So, how does one writer, Maimonides, and especially Maimonides, who is so logical and reasonable, how is it possible that he adopts two contradictory opinions about this subject in the same work? So I want to share this insight from Rabbi Sachs, and that is on the nature of moral life from a Jewish point of view. Because in fact, there is not a single model of moral life. The Rambam says there are two. And he identifies them. One is the way of the Chassid. And again, I want to be clear, we're not talking about what we identify today is a Chassid or Chassidim. That's not what we're talking about at all. So I'm going to use an English word just so that we don't get confused. The word Rabbi Sachs uses a saint or a chacham, a sage. Now, the saint is a person of extremes. The Rambam defines a saint as a person who engages in extreme behavior. Good things, but taken to an extreme. A person who acts more strictly than Jewish law requires. A person who goes so far as to be self-effacing, self-deprecating. Good qualities, but taken to an extreme. That's a saint. The Chacham, the sage, is different. The Chacham follows the path that we refer to as the golden mean, the middle way moderation and balance, a person who avoids any extreme. So they're not a cowardly, they're also not reckless. So we would say that they are courageous. A person is not miserly, they're not wasteful, but we would say they are generous. That's a chacham. A Chacham balances between the extremes because a Chacham knows the dangers of too much and too little. 
and therefore a Chacham will weigh the conflicting pressures and avoid the extremes, stay in the middle. Now, these are not just two different personalities. These are two different ways of understanding what is a moral life. Because a saint is trying to achieve personal perfection. A Chacham is trying to achieve a decent and just and compassionate society. Let me describe the difference. A person who is a saint may give away all of his money to the poor. But what about the members of his own household? They have to suffer because his self-denial, because his generosity goes to an extreme of giving everything away. A saint may refuse to fight any battle to go to the extreme of seeking peace. But what about when he is attacked and he does not defend himself? What about when his family or his country is attacked? A saint may forgive anything from anyone to go to the extreme of forgiveness. No matter what happens, he will forgive. But what about the rule of law? What about justice? A saint can be a very virtuous person, but you cannot build a society from saints alone. Because the truth is a saint is not really interested in society. A saint is more interested in my own personal perfection. But there's a certain sense in which my pursuing my own personal perfection and going to extremes it's a form of self-indulgence because it means that I'm not really seeking a perfect society. I'm not really looking for what is perfect for you. I'm looking at what is perfect for me. A Chacham is a person who is trying to create a perfect society. But he or she realizes that there are other people at stake. So I can't simply retreat into myself and only look after myself. I have to sacrifice certain self-perfection in order to be able to help others to create society. And from this point of view, a Nazir is a saint. Well, that's deserving of praise from a personal point of view. He or she wants to perfect themselves. But from a societal point of view, that person is, at least figuratively, 
a sinner who has to bring an offering of atonement, a carbon chattas, because they have disregarded the needs of the wider society. And the truth is that the Rambam himself, Maimonides himself, was an example of this tension. We know from his own writings of how he worked day and night to create his legal writings, his philosophical writings, and it's clear he would have loved nothing more than to bury himself in scholarly pursuits to continue to write works that would still be referred to by everyone. And yet, he had responsibilities to his family, to his community. And he writes about how he had to sacrifice his own self-perfection and scholarly studies and writing and teaching in order to be able to care for others. Maimonides wanted to be a saint, but he knew that he could not if he was to honor his responsibility to his people. And so he had to balance it. There are many people today who face this in a multitude of ways. To pursue excellence and perfection in one realm through excessive stringencies with apparently no awareness of the difficulty that that places on others. There's so many examples of this. I hesitate to mention examples because I don't want to risk perhaps embarrassing someone. But it's very, very common for a person to pursue a stringency and not realize that it's causing their family difficulty. It's causing the community difficulty. It happens in so many, many ways. I'll share one example that's objective from a different person, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the greatest scholar of his generation a generation ago, who wrote responsa to the most important questions facing the Jewish people, facing every individual Jew, his writing was read by and is read by and is followed by hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Ramosha Feinstein, who lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in New York, he would be sitting at his table working, learning, writing, and his wife would say, Moshe, dinner is ready and he would stop in the middle of the sentence. He would drop the pen, he would close the book. He didn't finish the Pasuk. He didn't finish the sentence. He didn't complete his thought. And this is a person who was working on guidance for millions of people. Matters of life and death, literally without exaggeration. He wanted to be a saint. He wanted to immerse himself only in his work, but he refused to do so in a way that would have consequences for
for anyone else around him, even someone who so well understood him as his own wife. He was a saint, but he was also a chacham. And balancing the two of those is what we need to aim for. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So we just finished the holiday of Shavuos. And some of us on Shavuos had the wonderful opportunity to be in shul, in synagogue, and to hear the birchas koanim, the priestly blessing in Israel, in synagogue, the kohanim, the priests, deliver the priestly blessing, Birchas Kohanim, every single day. But outside of Israel, it only happens on Yom Tov. Some of us were able to hear that and appreciate that this Yom Tov. And if you were not, I hope that soon you'll be able to, hopefully for the next Yom Tov. The text of that blessing is in our Parsha, the Parsha of Nassau, this Shabbos. And the Torah says as follows. God speaks to Moshe and says, Daber el Aaron vel lemar. Speak to Aharon, your brother, Aaron, who was the first Kohen, the Kohen Gadol, and his sons, the Kohanim, and all of the priests that descend from him. And say as follows. Ko sevorchu es Yisrael. This is how you should bless the Jewish people. That's what the Kohanim do with Birchas Kohanim. The priestly blessing. It comes from our Parsha. This is how you should bless the Jewish people. May God bless you and protect you, etc. We're all familiar with this famous blessing. And then the Torah says, the Samu es Shmi al Yisrael, and you, the Kohanim, you shall place my name on the children of Israel, on the Jewish people, and I will bless them. That's an interesting passage because it seems to contain an internal contradiction because the passage begins with God commanding the Kohanim, the priests, that they, the Kohanim, should bless the Jewish people. But then, at the end, the verse says that what the Kohanim are doing is placing God's name on the Jewish people. We'll see what that means. But in fact, God says, I will bless them. God is going to bless them. So, which is it? Is it the Kohanim that are blessing or is it God who is blessing? The passage itself seems to contradict each other. I want to share with you the understanding of one of our classic commentators, Rabbi Moshe Alshech. He says something that is very deep. Perhaps not all of us will be able to relate to it, but I think that many of us will. And we should all try to relate to it. The Alshik writes, there are many people 
who doubt that they deserve a blessing that comes from God. There are people who believe that they are defined by the worst thing that they have ever done. There are people who feel scarred, who feel defeated, and they simply refuse to accept the gift of God's love. Because love reminds them of everything they have lost. And for some people, love is too painful to receive. Because sometimes receiving blessing is hard when we have been so damaged by experiences of abandonment, of loss, of disappointment, of trauma, we might come to believe that we are no longer worthy of God's bounty, of God's blessing. And that's why, ironically, some of us are more comfortable giving love than receiving it fully. Consider these words from Brené Brown. Until we can receive with an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. When we attach judgment to receiving blessing, we unknowingly attach judgment to giving blessing. According to the Al-Sheikh, the task of a Kohen, who is a spiritual leader, what does that mean? The task is to help us, the Jewish people, allow ourselves to be able to receive blessing and love from God. To assure us that we are deserving of this blessing that God's love for us is unconditional, that no matter what we may have done, no matter how lowly we feel in our own eyes, but in God's eyes, we are deserving a blessing. The Kohen needs to convince many of us of that. The Kohen needs to reassure us of that, and the act of a Kohen reassuring us that we in fact are entitled to God's blessing, that's what it means for a Kohen to be holy. That's what it means for a Kohen, a priest, to be a spiritual leader. And the same is true in another context in which we find this blessing. Many parents will bestow this blessing on their children every Friday night. That's a custom that many of us have. There too, perhaps the most important job that parents have is to provide the reassurance to our children and grandchildren that they are deserving of God's blessing 
that they are entitled to God's love unconditionally, regardless of behavior or actions. That's what is being conveyed. And that's why the Kohen addresses the people. God says to the Kohen, face the Jewish people, address the Jewish people. God says to every parent, face your children and grandchildren, address your children and grandchildren and assure them, I am going to provide the blessing. I, God, am going to provide the blessing, but face them and assure them that they are deserving of it, that they are entitled to it, that they should be able to receive it. Let me share one last piece. <clears throat> I have spoken with you several times about my grandfather. I've spoken with you about his wisdom, about his accomplishments. I've shared the close relationship that he and I shared for many years. Of course, I hope you understand it should not be a surprise that there were a few times that he was disappointed in me. Just a few. I remember one of them very well. I was a young teenager. My grandfather, Sam Margolin, as I shared with you, was a prolific public speaker. He used to travel all over the United States speaking on behalf of Jewish education. And I often accompanied him. I knew his stories by heart. I've shared some of them with you. So one time, I was a young teenager, one time my grandfather said to me, did I ever tell you the story about... And of course, he had told me that story at least 20 times. I knew it by heart. And I said, and I truly thought that I said it respectfully and with appreciation. I said, yes, you did tell me that story and it is a wonderful story. And he got upset with me. And he said, Michael, when someone wants to tell you a story, you should never take away their pleasure in telling it by saying, yes, I know it already. That happened over 50 years ago and I've never forgotten it. Permit me to share with you an insight from Rabbi Yisachar Frand about our Parsha this week, the Parsha of Naso, which is the longest single Parsha in the Torah, 176 verses. Rabbi Fran said when he was a child, he used to think to himself, I hope that's not my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. How in the world would I ever be able to learn the longest Torah portion in the whole Torah? 
And he says he remembers when he was a child that there was a boy a couple of years older than him who did have this Parsha, the Bar Mitzvah Parsha. And he felt so bad for this boy. How in the world was he going to be able to learn to be able to read in Shul that entire Parsha? When he got a little bit older, he realized this week's Parsha, the Parsha of Nusso, it's the easiest Parsha for a Bar Mitzvah boy to study. Because more than half of the Parsha is about the gifts given by the Nesim, the 12 princes, one of each tribe, who during the dedication of the Mishkan, the sanctuary, each day one Nasi, one prince, brought a collection of gifts that would be used in the service of the Mishkan, of the sanctuary. And it's about a long paragraph of all the different items in the gift. And all 12 brought the identical set of gifts. So the Torah says, on the first day, so-and-so brought the following gift. And it lists them. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten verses. Then it says, on the second day, so-and-so brought the gifts. And it lists every single one, word for word, the same gifts. Twelve times. So it's very easy for a bar mitzvah boy, because you only have to study the first the first set of gifts, once you know that, the next three columns of reading. Yes, of course, you're going to need some water because it's, you know, it's, it's hard on your throat, but it's easy to learn because it's repetitive. Why in the world do we have so much repetition in the Torah? Let the Torah say, on the first day, so-and-so brought the set of gifts. Here are the gifts that he brought, every one of them. On the second day, so-and-so brought the exact same gifts. On the third day, so-and-so brought the exact same gifts. That's all you have to say. Why spend, I don't know, two, three columns of text with every detail repeated 12 times? I have shared with you several different answers to this question. I shared one this morning. Over the years, I've shared others. But here's a new answer. It's an answer that is simple, but it's an answer that is very important to put into practice. And I'll start with a story. About a hundred years ago and more, during the period of Tsarist Russia, if a person was drafted into the Tsar's army, they were there for 25 years. No early release. That's it. 25 years. Now, aside from all the other implications of that for every single soldier, for a Jewish person, it also meant that there was absolutely no opportunity to observe any mitzvah. You couldn't keep kosher, you couldn't observe Shabbos, you couldn't study Torah, that's it. So being drafted into the Tsar's army for a Jew meant 25 years, no Torah, no mitzvahs, that's it, it's over. It was terrible, it was a, it was a catastrophe. And so, Everybody tried to get out of the draft, but especially 
Jews for whom it meant Judaism would be destroyed. That's it. Over. And so, Jews in Russia, if they were drafted, they would do anything possible to find an exemption, to get out of it, legal, not so legal, moral, not so moral, anything. The greatest rabbi in Europe at that time was Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter, who was the rabbi of Kovna. He had a student who received a letter from the government that he was being drafted into the army. This young man applied for an exemption, but did not get an answer right away. And so he was waiting to get an answer to see if his request for an exemption would be granted. He was terribly anxious. Not only he was terribly anxious, his family was terribly anxious. The whole town was terribly anxious. What is going to happen with this young man? Would the exemption come or would it not? And they couldn't do anything except sit and wait. One day it happened that Rabbi Specter, together with two other rabbis, was adjudicating a case in Jewish law. A civil case in Jewish law. And they were in intense deliberations. The judges were trying to come up with a compromise between the two parties. And they were deliberating and they were working out these details. It was quite intense. And all of a sudden, another young student ran into the room and said, Ruvain got his exemption. He got it. He got the letter. He's exempt. And Rabbi Specter was so happy. Baruch Hashem, thank God. And I appreciate you so much coming in to tell me right now this wonderful news. In the merit of you sharing this wonderful news with you, with me now, you should merit a long life and God's blessing. Thank you, thank you for telling. Three minutes later, another student burst into the room. Ruven got his exemption. And Rabbi Specter said, Baruch Hashem, thank God. I am so grateful to you that you came in and told me right away. May the merit of your coming to give me this news bring you long life and blessing from God Thank you, thank you, Yashikayach. It happened six more times. And each time, Rabbi Specter responded with the same enthusiasm and blessing to the person who came to tell him. So, one of the other rabbis in the room said, uh, Rabbi Specter, you know, first of all, we're a little bit busy here. And second of all, after the second, third, fourth time, why don't you just say to the next person that comes in, thank you very much. I already received the news. The news. I appreciate it. Thank you. Rabbi Specter understood that when a person is excited to give good news and they come in to share it and their understanding is that you do not yet know this news, 
and they come with enthusiasm and excitement, you have to respond with enthusiasm and excitement. And that person deserves the encouragement of having done this wonderful act of kindness to come interrupt, to give this wonderful news. And so what if I heard it once or twice or six times or 11 times, but the 12th person is not doing it with any less enthusiasm? If someone does an act of kindness, someone brings you a drink of water, even if you just finished one, but you should show no less gratitude because the action is no less sincere. In other words, our appreciation of each other should be like God's appreciation. It should not be based on how much we need what we are receiving from this person who is offering us this gift or this favor or this kindness. It should be based on the enthusiasm and the good intentions of the one who gives it. And that's why each prince's gift is repeated in full That's why our portion this Shabbos is the longest in the entire Torah. And that's why if you say to me, did I ever tell you the story of, I will say no. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.